good white racists are, to, are people who are intent on defending their comfort and their inherent sense of their own goodness. And we need to deconstruct that. We need to be able to move through the discomfort and get to a place where, and sit with that, really sit with that discomfort and everything that it means and those messy feelings and come to the realization that, yeah, I am a good person, right? I do care about these things. And yet at the same time, I have still been complicit in mm -hmm. systems of racism and my silence has made me complicit and I benefit from them, right? And until we can, can do that hard work, until we can get to that place where we're sitting with those messy feelings and and moving in through a place of lament, I believe is something that we need to do and and despair. We can't ever do the actual work at hand, which is inviting the kingdom of God to appear here on earth, uh, in, inviting shalom for all creatures on earth. We can't do that work until we are willing to sit in that mess. Hi, my friends. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's episode 100. I don't even know. I'm recording this intro on election night. It's about 9.30 at night on the East Coast, and I've watched none of it because I can't. It's exhausting. The world is exhausting. The weather's exhausting. Politics, religion, faith, church, it's all exhausting. And it doesn't need to be. We could realize that we're all humans and we all bear the divine and act that way. Wouldn't that be lovely? But that's not why you're here today, is it? I apologize for the somber tone there, but that's where I'm at at recording this intro. That's just where I'm at. My guest today is Carrie Connolly. She wrote a book called Good White Racist. And you saw that title, I'm sure, and went, wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. What? And then you're going to listen to this conversation and go, that's not, I don't know how I feel about that. But I want to be clear, a lot of the work that needs to be done when we talk about racism and power structures and so many of the things, especially in the church, it needs to happen amongst the circles that we run into. And for me, those are white circles, unfortunately. Like, those are my predominant circles. There is a power that my voice has and there is a power that your voice has and it's time that we learned how to use that in a way that deals with supremacy and deals with exceptionalism in a way that doesn't skirt around the topic in a way that values humans every single one of us this is a challenging conversation and it's a very challenging book and it is worth every moment let's roll the tape with carrie Connolly. Carrie Connolly, welcome to the show. Appreciate your willingness to come on the 19th time. I think we found a date. So <laughs> yes. we made it happen. We did it. The night Thank of the vice you. presidential election. I could be doing yeah. a lot of things. I would rather be doing this than watching the next train wreck. So, <laughs> Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Well, good. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. So I always start off with a very simple question, but Sometimes they're 20 seconds and sometimes they're 20 minutes. So <laughs> what are you like as you kind of roll back through the Rolodex of this is what makes me me? Like what mm. are like what are those tent poles? Oh, wow. Um, that's such a good question. And and where to start? Um, what am I? I would have to say I'm I'm a writer, I think. And I, I say that first and foremost, only because it's one thing in life that I have to do that I would do even if even if nobody paid attention, I would just do it, right? So I think that that's definitely a part of, of who I am. Um, I identify as a follower of Jesus. Um, I am probably somewhat rebellious. I am um, uh, an Enneagram 8, if that mm. means anything to you. Yep. Um, and uh, a, a wife and a mom and a daughter and a friend and... Um, probably more on the woo-woo side of like mysticism and uh woo -woo that's side. where my faith is is kind of taking me after 
seminary kind of smashed it all to bits and then, you know, we reconstructed <laughs> it. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's, I definitely fall more on the mystical side of it than anything experiential. How do you define woo-woo? What's the inverse woo-woo. of woo-woo? Um, the, <laughs> what's the Just hashtag? To... What's the inverse of woo-woo? Um, so That's the episode you know, title right there. The inverse right of there, woo-woo. Absolutely. <laughs> That's a really good one. Um, so, so what I will say is that the the process of going to seminary I really did, like any good seminary, it it kind of um, completely smashed my faith to bits, which I think is a healthy thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then what happened was I looked down on the floor and I was like, wow, there was a whole bunch of stuff in there that I don't really want, like legalism and patriarchy and um, a whole lot of stuff. And I was coming out of evangelicalism, so when that happened and I removed those things, it left all this beautiful open space for my actual experience of the divine <laughs> to, to come in. And once that actually happened, um, it was kind of crazy because I started having to pay attention to some of the stranger experiences that I've had my hmm. entire life. And I could no longer compartmentalize them. I had to kind of pay attention to them. And, and hmm. um, yeah, so that's where the woo-woo comes in. <laughs> that's a that's a seminarian word. Yeah, the woo. It's it's Greek for exactly mystic. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I've had people try to explain. I've I've had people ask me to explain the way that I see Jesus, and woo-woo is never coming to the vernacular. But when you said it, I immediately was like, I get that. I know yeah. what you, I know what you mean. Um, yeah, totally. It's less Bible scripture passages and more Jesus, which I yes. know how heretical that that sounds saying you know out what? loud. Any, in my opinion, any opinion opinion that the old white guys that like decided, and I say that you know, but you know the the guy the dudes that got to put together and decide what got to go in the Bible. Anything that they didn't like is called heretical, whether it's hmm. the true experience of the divine or not. And so I, yeah. I'm proudly on the side of the heretics because <laughs> some good people over there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody's somebody's heretic. Uh, yeah. If you're, exactly. If you're Catholic, Martin Luther's a heretic. If you're exactly uh, Jerry Jr., I'm a heretic. Like everybody's somebody's heretic. It's totally, exactly. totally fine. Exactly. So I wanted to to ask a couple just so as I was reading through your book, which I don't want to get the title wrong. So let me make sure that I'm not misremembering. Um, yep. I didn't good white racist, which is a title that when you see it on the end cap, you're like, wait, what, what, mm-hmm. what happened here? What just, what just <laughs> happened here? So we'll go, we'll come back to that. But yeah. as I read through your book, um, I, I want to know on a scale of, of, you know, one to 10, 10 being overt sarcasm, like what is your base level of, of sarcasm? Just oh, in a day to day, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's pretty high. Because I'm I, assuming I mean, I'm, the I'm editors, <laughs> I'm assuming the editors filtered it down a bit. So, like, oh, indeed. <laughs> what was revision one? Like, yeah. what was that at? <laughs> they were. I had to. There, there were some things I had to fight for. I had to be like, no, listen, you can't. You gotta let me keep this one, please. <laughs> like, please, this is just my voice, you know. And it's also, you know, I think anybody. Not that I had a huge audience um, before the book came out, but for the people who did read my the blog that I was writing and stuff, they would have expected mm. there to be some serious sarcasm and snark, you know? So it's, yeah, yeah, but it's definitely who I am. Yeah. I should have included that in your first, my first answer. <laughs> well, as I read through, I found myself <laughs> nodding. I'm like, yeah. So for the longest time, um, I fought against the Enneagram mostly because I don't like things that everybody talks about. That's why I don't like the Patriots, which I don't know if you like the Patriots or not. It's fine if you do. I don't. Um, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, but it doesn't matter what it is. Like that thing that everybody is like the, the shiny new toy. I'm like, I don't mm-hmm. care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for the longest time, Enneagram was that. And then at the prodding of my pastor and many other people, I began to dig into it. And I, and I genuinely enjoy the process of that now. For the longest time, though, I, however, thought I was an eight. And upon further reflection after many, uh, after a couple of years, I realized I'm not, I'm a five. And if I showed you my books and my notes and oh. the way that um, I was just an unhealthy five, like hoarding yeah. knowledge as a dictator, you know? Oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but eight really felt good because that's the way that I was badly acting. Um, you, oh, mm, I know. <laughs> but it We're felt rough. good. It did. felt powerful. It, it and, you know, I resonate with that, too, because I don't really know a lot about the Enneagram. Quite, it, it confuses me. I've not yet studied it. I do want to. I want to actually get certified in it. But when the, the eight totally resonates with me. But then I was reading that 
it could be possible I'm just a broken something else. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I should probably look into that one of these days. Yeah. But I'm too busy, like, you know. Yeah. So my I pastor's don't. being trained by, and and I don't know if you'll ever hear this, Barrett. I have no idea if he's listening. He may. Um, <laughs> something about, like, as you see those arrows, if you go against the arrow, that's, you're being healthy. You go with the arrow, you're just, like, not yes. not being healthy. Right. Um, but it was funny is when I told him I was a five, he's like, of course you are. And he started rattling <laughs> off all these things. I was like, how long have you known? <laughs> For, like, <laughs> why didn't you tell me? <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's not the fun part. Anyway, not while you're here. Not while you're no. here. So um, I wanted to address something that you said. It's either in the intro or maybe it's the person that wrote the forward. I can't remember which, but I feel like it's in the intro that you felt the need to write this book on being a good white racist specifically to other white people, which I find is appropriate because we're both white people. Yep. Um, it, yeah, to the best of my knowledge. And so why that clarification? What matters there? Why is that? Because I, I feel like most people just skip the intro. Um, mm. You know, what I mean? in many books, they just try to get into the meat or they glaze over it. And I'm bad about I, that I as that well. Totally. Yeah. So, but why that clarification? Why does that matter? I think it matters because partially... It matters because white people in general, especially white Christians, we tend to have a huge savior complex, like this white savior complex, right? And I wanted to be super clear that I was not trying to explain whiteness to black people or racism to black people, I that this was not a, or to the BIPOC community as a whole, this is not... Um, this. It needed to be very specific that this was a conversation between two white people, myself and the reader, right? Um, and part of that also is about the fact that I'm sitting here as a companion along this journey, right? Having done some of this work, by no means am I done with this work, but as in complete, but I am I am doing this work along with the reader, right? And, and I think that that's really important. I think it's important for white people to take up this labor. Uh, I think uh, black people specifically, but we've asked the BIPOC community to do this work for far too long. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it's, it's time for us to, to do our part, you know? And, um, and so that's kind of really why I was, what I was trying to get, get at there is that it's just, it's really important for white people to understand that this is a white, a conversation that white people need to be having. Mm. Why? Because, because whiteness is invisible to white people. And it's constructed to be invisible to white people. And so it's our sickness. It's our uh, soul distortion or disfigurement. And it's, so it's our um, responsibility to, to go about the work of our own healing, right? And until we consider the, this work, just that, the work of our own healing, until we can, we can really start to understand that this is something that is, is within us that we need to root out and practice agency over until we can, we can really start doing that work and doing that, that discernment and uh, that agency, practicing that agency, we're never going to heal racism, right? As it, the, black people can sit there and, and yell and they can protest and they can um, take to their knees and they can do all of the things and none of it will matter if, if white people are not willing to do white work. Mm. And, um, and that's why I do what I do, right? Is because we have to, we have to, I need to, my goal is to invite white people into a place of ultimate discomfort um, and truly to deconstruct and decolonize our own identities, right? Um, so that we can we can find the true self that, that I believe we are created to be um, so that we can all move into a place of shalom, you know, of, of what God actually intended for us. Yeah, that's one of my favorite words, shalom. It's actually how I, how I sign almost every email, unless it's mm. just a quick, I'll get the kids after school. Or, you know, <laughs> yeah, those emails don't, don't get a shalom. Um, yes. Yeah, it's one of my favorite. Because uh, I, I, the concept of that word, the, the mm. theology of that word is massive. Honestly, yes. it might even be the gospel. Indeed. Different, different topic altogether. Yes. Um, but yes, yeah. 
Anyway, you're using the words, and, and I want to be real clear. I'm going to probably be tongue-in-cheek and devil's advocate um, because totally cool. most people listening most likely have not read the book. Mm-hmm. And for people listening, that's on you. You should hit pause and just, you really should read the book. Write, write the book. No, read the book is the what you're supposed to say. Yeah, buy the book. <laughs> buy the book is what I was looking for. Um, so uh, it's been a long day. Um, so... Yeah, so when you say good white racist, I think most mm-hmm. people are going to read that and go, I don't know what that means. Like, yeah, and you yeah. take, don't take chapters because, you know, don't, you take literally three chapters to define those. So <laughs> what are you meaning to say when you say those? And then I have another question that I, I don't script these that I just thought of from what you said yeah. a moment ago. Yeah, but we'll no, get that's there. cool. So, um, so essentially what I'm trying to get at here is the idea of paradox, right? I'm, and I think that just in general, the American psyche has a really hard time holding paradox, holding this idea that we, we love binaries, right? And so holding this idea that more than one thing can be true at the same time. Mm. And, I, and also in our American psyche is this deeply embedded hero complex, right? This idea that that Americans are always the good guys. And that is that is a, a message that is deeply embedded in, in our culture and in our national identity, right? And, um, and the truth is, is that we've done a lot of really crappy things, right? We've done a lot of, as, as a country, as a nation, we've done some, we have some pretty horrific things in our history. And uh, racism, obviously being, and slavery, obviously being one of the biggest, right? And so what I'm trying to help people understand is that white people, and I'm not, when I'm saying good white racists, I'm not talking about the KKK. I'm not talking about neo-Nazis. I'm talking about good people who really care and don't want to be racist, right? The idea of, uh, of, racism is not something that they would aspire to it's not something that that they they want in their in their psyche or in their lives they don't want to embody it and yet they are unwilling because they are so intent on protecting two things their own comfort right and they're 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 feeling this defensiveness and this unwillingness um to to acknowledge the fact that they could be not all that good, right? Like mm. that, they, that there can be, there's, there's some goodness in them and there's also some, some messiness in them. Right. And so good white racists are, are people who are intent on defending their comfort and their inherent sense of their own goodness. And we need to deconstruct that. We need to be able to move through the discomfort and get to a place where, and sit with that, really sit with that discomfort and everything that it means and those messy feelings and come to the realization that, yeah, I am a good person, right? I do care about these things. And yet at the same time, I have still been complicit in Mm. systems of racism and my silence has made me complicit and I benefit from them, right? And until we can, can do that hard work, until we can get to that place where we're sitting with those messy feelings and and moving in through a place of lament, I believe is something that we need to do and and despair. We can't ever do the actual work at hand, which is inviting the kingdom of God to appear here on earth, uh, in, inviting shalom for all creatures on earth. We can't do that work until we are willing to sit in that mess. So a minute ago, and, and I'm going to come back to some of that, but a minute ago you had talked about, and I don't remember your words exactly because I can't write fast enough, mm-hmm. about you know the reason that it matters for the audience primarily being other white people is that we need to enact some change. Mm-hmm. We need to do something. Mm-hmm. So as I read through the book and as I talked to some of my friends that are not white, mm-hmm. um, there is a power structure, a, a struggle. And, and I've had this conversation with them often of, you know, Oftentimes, we don't want to give someone else of a different race power and authority because we're terrified, if we're honest, that they'll do what we've Mm -hmm. generationally done to them back to us. But I find the odd, I'll use your word paradox, that it is going to require whites expressing power and giving away power to enact that change. So, and I don't know if I'm saying that right, but I don't know how to ride that tension yeah, that is, it's so insightful. And this is the thing that I think the, I think 
so many of my white friends that when we struggle with this over, you know, a bottle of wine or a couple of drinks or whatever, this is where we always get to is that there's, there is this tension and there is going to be this messy period of time where we are going to have to center whiteness in order to decenter it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we are going to, there's this idea. Okay. So you're going to, you're a bunch of white people who care about this stuff. You're going to put on a conference. Um, how do I, how do I not put on a, a typical white, especially a white Christian conference, right. Which is usually a bunch of white dudes up on stage and nobody else. Right. So how do we really intentionally be, how do we be intentional about sharing that platform? Well, just the fact that we're ha we have to come from the position of we, we own the platform mm -hmm. and that we're going to share that in itself is something that needs to be deconstructed, but we still, that doesn't mean that we, we throw up our hands and say, well, then I'm not going to share my platform. Right. Like, like I'm yeah. going to take all my toys and go home. Right. We don't get to, we have to sit in that discomfort and we, and this is what the, ultimately the problem is, is that we have suffered a failure of imagination. You know, Andre Henry, who is somebody that I suggest everybody follow. Um, I agree. Yeah, he's, he's great. And he uh, tweeted one time, he said something like, I don't understand. And he was talking specifically about white women. He goes, I don't understand why white women place themselves in a role of anti-racism work because doesn't it equivalent, isn't it equivalent to self-annihilation? And I'm like, yes, actually it is. <laughs> it is the, the white work that when, when we are deconstructing our white identity, it is about dying to self. It is about self-annihilation. And the faith part comes in where we go, okay, I'm going to trust that God's going to show me what I'm going to be. Mm. But we have suffered this massive failure of imagination. Um, and that was, I think that was um, the, the way the book got started and the way I even started this whole process was I watched an episode of Ruby Sale of On Being with Ruby Sales, where Krista Tippett interviews ruby sales you, if you watched don't it know, i thought that was just a podcast no it's a video really There's the, yeah at least of this one it's i on, was yeah. i was today years old that i uh, yes that, yes well, really? so, yeah there's a website and it has video and yeah huh. it's really i didn't cool. know you could watch those okay yes and so if you don't know who ruby sales is she was a uh she's a public theologian womanist theologian and she is uh she was 17 years old she was at a civil rights uh rally she was standing on the porch of a, of a general store and a white man came up and with a shotgun and pulled the trigger and a young white seminarian threw his body in front of Ruby and saved her life. He died immediately, mm. changing her life forever. And in this episode of On Being, she says, um, you know, I know we have a, a black liberating theology. What I want to know is where is the white liberating theology, right? Where is the theology that liberates white people from hunger and pain and drug addiction and all of the things? And I was so struck. I mean, it's such a womanist uh, theology and, and thing to say, right? But, but I was so struck by the generosity of it. And it really got me thinking. I was like, okay, well, what is what would a white liberating theology look like? And I was sitting in seminary. I'm like, well, what better place to start hmm. thinking about it than in <laughs> seminary, right? And then I realized this book really came out of my understanding that I needed to have an under, uh, an education on what white identity actually is, right? And that's yeah. kind of what how I got to this book. But what I realized in the process is that we actually have really, we have this failure of imagination that we cannot imagine what we would be without this con constructed identity of dominance. And until we can begin to imagine what it would be like to, to no longer embody a, a, a false dominance, we will never be able to create or participate in the creation of a more just world. So for me, my faith really struggled a few years after marriage with having a child because emotions happen and fives don't deal well with emotions and yay, we did it. Yeah, um, and that's the it. most I'm going to say about that because I'm not, do I'm not <laughs> crying tonight. Um, I'm not crying ever again. Um, and, uh, sure you're so, not an eight? Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know. It sounds pretty eight to me. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, <laughs> you're, so you're a little of every number. Um, yeah, that's and true. I should find it or get my pastor to say it, there's one part where he's like, because it would take a one, like when Jesus did this, and it would take a two, like when Jesus did this, and it would take a three, like when Jesus mm -hmm. did this. And he rolls through 
all of these different parables and stories. And he's like, what I'm trying to tell you is when you're healthy, that's what you're supposed to be. Like you're ah. supposed to be able to access different all ways to be with different people. Because yeah. anyway, again, yeah. Um, but he does a rant. It's one of those rants that I'm sure in seminary people memorize. You're like, oh, he's doing the story again. He's doing yeah. that. Like you can tell because yeah, every time he tweaks it slightly and it, it gets better or worse depending on uh-huh. the week or, or uh, you know, allergy medicine or what's in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're going through all this in seminary then? Like that's when everything kind of shattered around this? Like how does that go over in seminary when you're trying to talk about it? Or you just kind of, no, I'm going to sit in the corner. I'm going to shut my yeah, mouth because no. they're going to kick oh, me so, out. Okay, that's a, that's a, yeah. So let me, that timeline is important. So I wrote a blog called Jersey Girl Jesus. I don't really write there anymore. I write more, that was on Pathios, but I write more on my own blog now, but mm-hmm. uh, on my own website. But um, so I was writing a lot about race and LGBTQ rights and women's rights and with, through the, the evangelical Christian lens, right. It, or, or how should I say this? Not through that lens, maybe opposing that lens. Um, and I, you know, for a blog that had Jesus in the name, the most feedback I would get would be around racial issues and LGBTQ, mm-hmm. obviously those two issues, which of course being the eight, I was like, Oh, poke, poke. Right. So let's talk about that some <laughs> more. And, you know, I was just really shocked by the visceral reactions that I got from white people. And I started seeing patterns and noticing like the ways the, the comebacks and the, the comments, they all started to sound the same, right? Like the same arguments. And I was like, wow, this is like, this is a thing. And it kind of got me really interested in that. So I was already kind of there. And then our first class, my very first class in seminary, it's a diverse seminary. And it's one of the, I think it's the only one that actually has a PhD program in African-American preaching and homiletics. And so it was, it's, it's a pretty diverse student body very first class we took, I I had um, a four hour afternoon session in this very diverse, um, and when I say diverse, I mean, there were black people and then there were were white people at every end of the, the spectrum of racial awakening. And we had a conversation about race Mm. that was pivotal. I mean, it was, it was exhausting and it was, um, emotional and it was beautiful. And I think we, we all, I think came out of that experience really well bonded as a, as a, as a class, as a cohort. Right. And then throughout the the rest of my journey, I was able to take classes in liberation theology and womanism, womanism and, um, and to and process theology and to study all of these different theologies that like who knew who who ever thunk that there were all these other ways to think about God oh, and the Bible and yeah. I know it's like whoa wow <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's incredible yeah all, you know all those heretics right and um, <laughs> and so when I was exposed to uh, uh, you know the uh, uh, a black liberation theology that starts to help me understand that you know, if God decided to come down and put a body on, then maybe God cares about bodies and we should too. Right. And, Mm. and what, and, and when we, and, and how that changes my eschatology and how that changes what I'm thinking about the afterlife and, and what my reward is going to be and what does heaven actually is actually, you know, all of those things. Um, so it was pretty well, received, right? Although it was also a wonderful place for me to say a whole bunch of really stupid things. Hmm. (laughs) And um, luckily, I was able to make some really long lasting, I hope, um, deep friendships and relationships with with black people who were willing to invest the time in me um, and, and sit with me and have those really hard conversations whenever I said something stupid, which was often. Two of my best friends on the planet are, well, they're both black. And oftentimes when I'll say something stupid, one of them, he'll go, Seth, that's bullshit. Like, (laughs) <laughs> like no he's like i love you and i know but listen no yeah. no yes no and i'm like oh well oh, tell crap. me like what <laughs> i i, I want to be better tell me because yes, yes. i didn't i didn't know um mm-hmm. and then in hindsight i usually think i did know i just didn't mm-hmm. 
understand, um, mm-hmm. which I think is a different version than no. Um, yeah. I want to jump around a bit. So you have a chapter on gaslighting and ghosting, um, mm-hmm. at least. Yeah, I think that's what it's called. But in there, you talk about microaggressions. Mm-hmm. I don't. So can you kind of explain what those are and how those relate to good white racism? Uh, yeah. So the, the, one of the things that I think is really important to understand is that racism, and this is one of the, and I am going to, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to answer your question because this is not going to sound like an answer to your question, Perfect. <laughs> but I, I think it's important to, uh, to make this, to make sure that people understand this is that racism occurs on at least two levels. Um, that's probably oversimplifying it, but there's the individual, right? And that's where um, people get the most offensive, right? Where we go, oh, I'm not, I'm not a racist, right? I, you know, why are you calling me a racist? Because I said this thing, slavery's over, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Oprah's rich, so like, <laughs> you know, the, there's, but there are, there's that individual uh, aspect that of of the the individual soul that we need to be addressing and practicing agency over, and that that occurs with the thoughts that go through our minds and the ways our interpersonal relationships and how we embody those and behave in those right and then there's systemic racism which is the collective sin and that's the that's the the collective nature and the and the institutionalized um racism that is causing actual oppression among an entire people group or people groups right and um it's important to understand that there are two different places that it operates right and they are they are intertwined with each other but and and they are cohesive and you can't really separate them, but you need to understand that they're both there, right? So microaggressions work both individually and systemically. Um, so, for example, I, and I'll, I'll explain this because I'm not a I'm not a black person. I will I can exp- I can understand it as a woman because as a woman I experience microaggressions all the time, and I can give you a perfect example of one. So I was on my way to uh, an event where I was going to be speaking. I think I think I was speaking that night um, called Brew Theology, and I got into an Uber, and my Uber driver asked me where I was going. And to be honest, I was kind of tired. I didn't feel like talking. I was I was really exhausted, um, and I was getting into an Uber with a. a male driver by myself and I was preparing to go to this talk. And so I had to be on, I had to keep have my energy up and I was right. And I get into the Uber and he asks me where I'm going and he's just started talking, you know, incessantly. And then um, he asked me where I was going. I said, Oh, I'm going to a thing called Brutheology. And he got so excited because he had also been in seminary. And then he began to explain to me after I told him I, I was in seminary or he had not gone to seminary, but he started to explain biblical concepts to me. And I can't remember, but he picked like the most basic. It was like first day of seminary 101, like something. I can't remember what it was. And it was exhausting. And then he proceeded to tell me that at his church, he doesn't believe women should preach or pastor. Mm. And that is, I mean, that's a pretty blatant microaggression, but it's a microaggression because it's happening one-on-one. It's an interpersonal thing that's happening. And in that moment, I needed to make a choice. I could either end up confronting him and having a really uncomfortable Uber ride, right? Utilizing my energy um, and my emotional labor to educate him or to fight with him or to just even try to resist his oppressive uh, patriarchal mindset, um, and to establish my humanity and, and to fight for my own humanity in its fullness. Right. Um, or I could just be quiet and not, and let it go and move on to the next thing. Right. And as a woman, I, especially in, in the workplace, I might experience a number of microaggressions like that throughout the day, whether that's somebody touching my body in a way that I did not give them permission to, or making comments about my body, um, or making assumptions about my abilities because I'm a woman, all of these different things, right? Like he did telling, you know, telling me that I cannot for whatever, because of his theology, live into the fullness of my capacity, my God-given capacity and calling, right? So like all of those things, they are exhausting when they happen over and over and over again, right? So now you think about, let's, let's move that to the, the racial 
uh, aspect of the conversation. And let's talk about police brutality because, you know, it's not like it's a topical yeah. moment. Um, yeah. So there's you, you imagine first. First of all, you have to understand the system of policing and how we over police communities of color, right? Like, so that's, that's one whole thing, right? And then within that community of color, there might be a young kid or a young, let's say a young black man, right? Who every day is faced with small microaggressions based on his blackness, right? Whether it is from um, maybe a store owner or whether it's from the police, uh, police making small things like constantly pulling him over for something that a white person would never have never get pulled over for or like all of these things right so, and slowly and they they kind of peel away at his patience and one day he has a bad day he's not feeling it anymore and he loses his cool for him that's a deadly situation hmm. right that's a dead that becomes a deadly situation so that's one way that a microaggression or microaggressions operate in the uh, at the systemic level because now he his life is in danger because he lost his patience with an agent of the state yeah. right so so microaggressions can also occur when um my best friend Aisha uh has told me about how many times people white women will come up to her and say you're so pretty for a black woman hmm. right or oh you talk good for a black person Right. Like what, what does that even mean? You know, but those are small little microaggressions that you're kind of like, and you're almost like most people, especially women who are, are um, socialized to be nice all the time, smile and nod, make sure yeah. the men are comfortable in the room and that their feelings are always intact and their egos are not harmed. Right. Like this is what the work that we do as women all the time, black women carry an even bigger burden because they have to make sure that they're not just maintaining the, the male ego, but also the white ego and the comfort of all of them. Right. And so for a, a black woman, for example, to go through um, the world where white people might reach out and touch her hair because they think they can, because they think that's totally fine. Right. Um, and not weird at all. Right. Making assumptions about her marital status um, or like if she has kids, assuming she's a single mom or, you know, or that uh, registering surprise at her high education that she's achieved, the, the level mm. of high education she's achieved, small little things like that that um that black people will have to put up with over and over and over again and then when they finally respond with any sort of assertiveness um they are stereotyped as the angry black woman yeah. or you know the dangerous mm -hmm. black man right yeah so that's a little bit does that yeah. answer your question it, yeah um, a yeah. couple questions. So how long is this Uber ride? Like where were you like, oh, like, like was, was he just like, driving slow intentionally to get all of his it, really bad New Testament theology straight because yes, Phoebe didn't saying. exist or, or <laughs> it just, and we're just talking about Phoebe anyway, like yeah. how long is this Uber ride? It was like, like a 30 minute Uber ride, dude. It was horrible. Oh man. <laughs> it was exhausting. So that's a long and ride he, for him to diatribe like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And he was yelling like I, he was he was really loud and just did you rate him because i've never taken an uber because where i live so real but you can rate I people did. and say I you know did. bad theology hits potholes you want to you want to hear something even funnier sure even funnier almost not funny but it's funny ha, okay. ha, not funny is that like six months later the pastor at his church reached out to me to ask the, the church where i would not be allowed to teach a man or to preach hmm. reached out to me because he knew about my book and he wanted me to um, help him understand how he could, uh, I don't know, not be racist in his church anymore. I feel like that's a good thing though, right? It's a good thing. It's a great thing. But what I told him, I said, and they're not affirming too. So I said, you know, well, the thing is, is that you can't only affirm like one, one third of a person. Like yeah. you can't affirm just their black skin, but not their gayness or their womanness. Yeah. Like, yeah. Is humans that, come uh, yeah, in a whole package. Yeah, as as humans. Yeah. Yeah. Tend to do. <laughs> the, the, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah. So <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not often, yeah. I'm not often speechless, but we did it. So can I quote your book to you? Because you have a chapter on language and uh -huh. 
outside of not saying words that I'm not going to say right now. Mm-hmm. I never really thought about language in the way that you do it. Is, is it all right if I quote yes, your book sure, to you? So you say language is indelibly entwined with our identities that empire uses it quite effectively in torture. Or rather, empire uses torture to remove language from victims, reducing them to a prelingual state in order to appropriate their voices. And you go on to talk about where that comes from. But I'd never heard about language discussed in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, the only really entertainment of torture I'd ever done was whatever I see on TV or like waterboarding <laughs> or something like that. Mm-hmm. Just because honestly, I don't want to know. Yeah, no, I just I don't. Why, why would I want to? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. talk about that a bit. Like I don't. It's just it was all foreign to me when I read it. Yeah, that was, I remember the, the day that I, I found the article and, and the connections started being made right in my, in my head, when I found the article about ultimately what that, what torture is about, especially, uh, specifically the article was talking about, uh, torture in South American dictatorships, the way that those countries tend to use torture. Um, but I'm, I'm sure that our American government uses it equally um, the same, but I'm sure we're good at uh, it. We have the biggest military on the planet ever. Yeah, exactly. So I'm sure we're really good at it. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we are as well. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And so essentially what the goal of the, the goal of torture is to remove the person, the victim so far from any sense of community and, and their own personhood. And one of the first or one of the best ways to do that is to remove their capacity for language. And so when you, uh, when you create such intense pain that they cannot speak and instead are moaning in pain or screaming in pain, they are essentially reduced to a prelingual state, right? They've lost the ability to be part of their community because they can no longer communicate using the, the shared tool of language, right? And then what happens is that's the ultimate state of power because then the torturer can now take their own words, the, the words of the empire and place them into the, the, the mouths of the victims, which is what we have seen. Uh, I remember growing up there were, you'd always see images of soldiers who were um, hostages, like like they were being held hostage mm-hmm. or people being held hostage. And they were saying words that you knew were not their words, right? But they, they were being used as a tool, as a propaganda tool yeah. on television, right? And and so w- the words of empire had been placed in their mouths because they had been brought to a point of they had lost their language, right? Through through the use of torture. So so when I started thinking about America's history and and our history as um, a, a people who have participated in the kidnapping and the torture and the rape and the and the enslavement of whole groups of people, um, specifically Black and Indigenous people, but two different stories. So we'll stick with Black for right now, but I want to acknowledge mm-hmm. the har- horror done to Indigenous people. But um, so when, when I thought about that and the ways that in which we have dehumanized them um, from the beginning, right, and never fully uh, how, how do I want to say this? Because it's their humanity is not ours to give back, but we've never fully come to acknowledge their full humanity. Let's mm-hmm. say it that way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we still hold all of these constructs, but so so we took away their tribal identities, we took away their family identities, we took away their names. We called them all one word, right? All this Spanish word for black which became another word, which I'm not going to say, right. but we, we flattened and homogenized them all into this one identity. And then we, we um, shipped them over across the ocean and brought them here where we gave them our names and we gave them our religion and we gave them um, our identity, but only to a point, right? Um, and then we decided in order to help the poor savages, we then decided we would be kind and educate them, but only to a point. Um, and so we've never fully allowed them to use their voices because now whenever we do, we tell them they need to be nicer about it, right? We tell them, oh, you'll get, if, if you, do, I, I get that you're angry, but you need to be nicer because you're going to catch more bees with honey than you will with vinegar or something <laughs> right, like right, that, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to, you have to be sweeter about it. 
uh, oh, but when you protest sweetly and you take a knee, that's not good enough. We're going to talk about, you know, the flag that obviously has feelings, right? So uh, we need to protect that flag. While you're wearing a bandana, that's a flag, which is, uh, My favorite is like the bedazzled bikini tops. Those are awesome. Absolutely. So like, yeah, so so (laughs) it's just amazing while straddling a Harley. But anyway, um, so this is the, the what we've done we've stolen their 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 language we've we've refused to allow them to have their voice and one of the things that people studying torture have learned is that so often the assumption is that um revenge some being able to perpetrate some sort of violence against the the person who carried out the torture would be the ultimate uh satisfaction for these victims but in actuality that didn't bring closure what brought closure was to have their stories told heard to be able to tell their story and to have their to get their voices back and to to hear to have their their voices um share their story and to be heard and understood in in other words to be um reinstated back into community right Mm -hmm. and so that's what's never happened in our american narrative um around racial issues and certainly not with the church right right um so yeah so yeah does that answer your question yes have you i I feel like you talked about him at the beginning of your book but i don't know how to get to the bibliography in an electronic Mm -hmm. version so have you read um uh mark charles's most recent book uh truth no it's not called uh, what's it called yeah i know oh. what you're talking about i have not read his book yet it's I actually a monster interviewed him. it's yeah. a monster um it's yeah amazing his yeah. work is amazing yeah i had mark back on like episode like 10 or whatever and at the end of it i was just so mad like i was just angry but there's something that he said and it's in his current presidential run like you can't have rec you can't talk about reconciliation because we've never even had conciliation um and like the what's he call it like the cultural mindset or the cultural psyche or the culture i'm not saying it right like i don't know um for those listening hit just hit pause and then just yeah google mark charles and make it happen yeah his website is wireless hogan h-o-g-a-n he's brilliant yeah Yeah. he's great yeah um i'm gonna try to talk to him again when he's not running for president because that's a a literal thing that's happening Um, i know and it might make him a little busy i don't know (laughs) I I guess. Um, Maybe not. Um, So we haven't talked about the church much. And and honestly, I'm not certain if we'll have time to. Um, But that's okay, because you you talk about it a bit in the book. And there you have your own podcast as well that you flirt around with it as well. So that's easy to do. I have a couple more questions related towards what you talk about in the back of the book. So I want to tackle some of those ones that you're going to see on Facebook and Twitter and everything else. The uh, my ancestors didn't do this, so mm-hmm. I'm not racist. Uh, black people own slaves too. You talked about Oprah Winfrey being a gazillionaire tr- a minute mm-hmm. ago. Can you tackle some of those just in brief? Because they are, especially the Irish and slavery ones. Like, uh, yeah, where I, yeah, because I find when I try to explain things to people, I think I'm only making them dig their heels in further. Yeah. Like they're not yeah. listening, mm-hmm. uh, which is so frustrating. But if I don't mm-hmm. say something. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm, and you use the metaphor at the beginning of your book of like, if you don't build a fence around this pool that people are drowning in, like you're a problem. The right. pool is a problem. <laughs> so is the water. But you also are an a-hole because yeah, why would you watch exactly. someone drown? But right. I'm so frustrated. Yeah. I, so I don't know how to speak to some of those, which are the most common things that you're going to see from yeah. a lazy Google search that just gets right. posted into Facebook somewhere. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and it does take work because I think that the way that a person, one of the things that I've learned in, in having these conversations online and in person is that um, in order for people to, uh, to maybe not dig their heels in so much is uh, they need to be heard, right? Any, every person needs to feel heard, right? That's what everyone wants to feel. Um, and so what I try really hard to do is I try to attack narratives and not people, right? So I, I so but in order to attack or to interrogate a narrative, I and and that's really what what's happening, right? They're getting a soundbite, they're getting this narrative that they're being fed that is at best inaccurate, if not wholly false, right? Mm-hmm. And so 
we have to understand the narratives. And this is where there, there's going to be an investment for white people who actually care about this, is that we actually do need to know the facts and we need to understand the, the, the full system um, that's at play here, right? So the let's we'll go with the Irish, we're the Irish slaves, right? So first of all, that is a myth that came from one book that's been mostly debunked entirely, right? Um, and people need to understand that there is a huge difference between indentured servanthood and chattel, generational generations of chattel slavery, right? Where, where whole, whole generations of people were born into and died out of slavery, right? Um, and lived their entire lives in, in slavery. The other thing that you have to understand for that particular construct is um, the way whiteness works, right? Is it true that I, my ancestors uh, who are were Irish um, came here? I, none of them came, that I know of came as indentured servants. Um, however, what I do know is that they did come over under trauma, with with tr with great trauma. They came during the famine. Um, they came here. Some they died. They became addicted. They. They were abandoned at orphanages. There were horrible things that happened to them that were deeply traumatic, right? That's still not the same as slavery. And what's more is that, yes, it's true that they could walk into a restaurant or walk up to a restaurant and see a sign that said, no Irish, no dogs, right? And that's racism because they were not yet considered white. Mm -hmm. But they could also go down the street into a different bar and turn and where they were fully welcomed and turn around and say no blacks can come in here right so they were able to operate with a much more fluidity on the hierarchy of whiteness until and and the further they got away from their their own lineage they when they lost their brogues when they stopped eating the foods that they ate when they stopped listening or playing the music um and they they became the American, the Irish American, as opposed to the Irish, right? They were fully, more fully assimilated into whiteness um, so that, you know, they could even lose their religion. They could pretend to not be Catholic anymore. And then they they could pretty much pass as a, as a, a good old fashioned wasp if they wanted to, right? And that's, and, and wasps are the ultimate white people, right? Like that's ultimate. Can you what give that acronym what white it means? White Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Perfect. So, yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, think your blue bloods, your Mayflower um, people, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's who we're talking about. And so, so certain people, as they moved over, as they, as people groups came over from different parts of, of Europe and other places, they would be assigned certain places on the hierarchy of whiteness. And then as they assimilated, they could move higher up and, and become more white or, yeah. you know, and other people were less white, right? Yeah. Black people can never become completely white. Right. They, they just they simply can't. Right. And then you have to understand the, the impact of generational um, slavery and then the Jim Crow laws and how those impacted black people economically and then redlining. And you have to understand all of those things in order to be able to interrogate the narrative of, you know, the Irish were slaves, too. No, they were not. First of all, that's just a flat out lie. They were not slaves. And also the impact of generational slavery is, is so complicated. And it's like this big knotted twine or ball of twine, right? Like that you have to try and, and pull apart to see clearly all of the ways that it has impacted families um, to keep them impoverished generationally, to keep them um, under-resourced, under-educated and created so many more obstacles um, in their ways. Yeah. Way to success. Yeah. So I want to ask two and a half more things um, okay. I, <laughs> um, because there's so much that I want to ask that we, we genuinely don't have time. Um, yeah. Cause we haven't talked about education. We haven't talked about police reform. So really want to talk about Colin Kaepernick and we skirted around the issue, but mm -hmm. the, again, people read by the, by the freaking book. It's assume pie in the sky. We do this. And somehow you and I, I don't know how old your kids are. My oldest is 11. We raise a generation of quote woke people that are going to come alongside and maybe we'll actually figure out how to be better human beings. Mm. Um, 
what does that look like? Because I mm-hmm. think a lot of people, and I'm going to use the word good faith, because, but it's used in yeah. poor taste on both sides. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. what can, how should that look like 10, 15, 20 years down the yeah. road? That's the question. And, you know, it, I'm, I cannot be, I should not be the only person to answer that, right? I should, it, the first, the first way we're going to get to that place is it has to be an act of the collective, right? Um, Adrienne Marie Brown is one of the, the most important voices. Um, she's the author of a, of a book called Emergent Strategy and another one called Pleasure Activism. And, you know, she talks about biomimicry, right? As a, as a way of, um, a human adaptation, things, things like that, like that, that could actually lead to the kinds of the kind of imagining that we need to do as, as human beings, right? Because it, it really is going to call for a new way of being. It, it's going to call for something completely different from what we've al- already known. And I do think that, I do think that our youth can, can do it. I, I, I have hope. I mean, they took down a, a, an entire political rally through TikTok. I mean, come on, that's freaking amazing, <laughs> right? So like, if they can do that, I, I think that they have it in them to um, to make the kinds of structural changes that need to be made, right? Um, but that doesn't get us off the hook, right? We right. still have to be doing the work to subvert the system, to be chipping away at it so that we're creating those weak spots so that they can come in behind us and just take it all down, right? And rebuild something new. Um, and that sounds scary to a lot of people, especially, I think the older you are, the scarier it sounds because you're like, well, what's gonna come next, right? Mm-hmm. Something will come next. America came next, right? And and listen, I, I think that there's so much good in America, there is, there we have, ideals that are aspirational. We've never lived up to them, right? But, and, and America in, in and of itself is a paradox because we had the right idea. We just didn't live up to them, right? right. And so I think that, that when we can think back to what it must've been like at the time when these ideas were starting to, to be floated around and try to capture something like that, similar, similar to that now, that that might be able to give us an idea and then combine that with the shalom of God, the kingdom of God, what, what that would actually, what would the realm of God actually look like? And I specifically did not say kingdom. I said kingdom, K I N D O M, right? Like, so it's not about empire. It's about family. It's about a, a shared space. It's about holistic well being for all. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. that's actually the second question. And then the half is, is, is just to give me, cause I've asked it to everybody this year. So I knew I was going to ask it before you, we found the time to do this. So okay. <laughs> that's, this is that. So what happens to the institution of the church that you and I are accustomed to in mm-hmm. Western Protestant, I'm going to say America, but honestly it doesn't matter because it would be the same problem in Canada or the UK or yeah. any English speaking mm-hmm. country for the most part. Like what happens if if yeah. if that happens if us if we chip away at something and our children stand on the, on the foundations that we've helped rapture and or rupture not rapture yeah. different thing altogether different um, thing <laughs> altogether rupture um what yeah. happens to the church like what what happens so i think that's up to us i think that's up to the church i think it it could either disintegrate or it could become something even more beautiful and uh than we could ever even imagine. You know, I was talking to a pastor because I coach pastors through racial, uh, leading their churches to become anti-racist. And I was talking with um, one the other day. And what I think, first of all, first, okay, two things I want to say. My brain goes too fast. Um, the first thing that I want to say is that I think you relate, right? <laughs> the first thing is I want to say is uh, I, there, there was a guy, a rabbi who came in and talked to a class and he told us, that in, in Genesis, where the scripture that's typically um, translated as I am that I am, it's it's actually a horrible translation. It, it's a phrase in Hebrew that cannot be translated at all, really. But the closest thing that it could that could come anywhere near it would be something more along the lines of I will become all that I have yet to become, or I will be all that I have yet to become, which is this beautiful, like it speaks to this beautiful state of perpetual becoming that God is, right? Which, you know, 
this is why I have no patience for people who point at other people and call them heretics, because who are you to tell me that I'm not a part of God's newest becoming, right? Or mm-hmm. new way of, of becoming. And so I think that the church would do well to release our hold and our, and our grip on um, what our constructs have been and embrace what, what new thing God is doing. You know, I, I know that there's a scripture that says, see, I am doing a new thing. And that is such one of the most hopeful, uh, beautiful scriptures to me. See, I am doing a new thing. And, and I think that COVID has, uh, and this is the second thing I want to say that COVID has demonstrated the possibility. Um, and, and I am not trying to make light of COVID. So let me just be, I'm not trying to say, Hey, this was God's will. God wanted, like, that's, crap okay i'm not no, saying that no you're but, right though yeah it's it is uh amplified timelines it it, it yes. has to yeah yes totally and one of the things that i think it's done for churches is it has um expanded our walls to be so much more inclusive at least the churches that i see doing a really good job of it mm-hmm. you know they are now having people who are coming to to worship with them from you know all the way across the country right and if we can find belonging in that way, um, if the church, if the Holy Spirit, if the if the Sophia of God can can reach through Zoom and touch <laughs> ha- the hearts of you know um, people in in new and different ways, then I think that we can trust uh, the the Sophia of God to um, figure out a new way for the church to be if we're willing to hear her right. Yeah. Um, and hear what she has to tell us. Final question, question I've asked everyone this year. When you try to wrap words around what God is, like someone asks you tomorrow in an Uber, hey, <laughs> you talk about God, uh-huh. what do you mean? Like, mm-hmm. what are the words that you try to wrap around that? Yeah, that's, you know, it's like how to solve the political <laughs> crisis in America. Um, <laughs> Just pull the lever. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, just press the button. Um, it's that meme. It's the big red button with the guy with that. Yeah, it's yeah, done. Right, fixed it's done. It. I just fixed it. <laughs> uh, so I think the divine is um, is everything that is in our consciousness and beyond. Right, all of the things that we we have yet to imagine and. Um, and I think it is, uh, the divine is p- pure potential um, and genesis and creativity and life force, right? So I don't believe in, I don't believe in a vengeful, destructive God. Um, I think that goes against any kind of logic that anybody could try to apply to the concept of God, right? Mm. I just, I don't, um, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. I think men, not men as in, I mean, uh, let me say humanity adam adam yes exactly adam uh can can be vengeful Mm -hmm. and we like to model our gods after adam right but i don't think it goes the other way i think i think god is pure life force and Mm. pure creativity in genesis yeah perfect where do people go where do they go to learn how to, you know, where, where do you want people to go wherever the that best is place to find all the things is my website which is kerryconnelly.com perfect perfect it's all there For you the can late- also check me out on instagram carrie.connelly so. carrie.con i'm so bad at instagram i get on there i like people's things and i don't know what to do with it like I'm, i get yeah. messages of being tagged in stories and i don't even know what that means because I, I I click on it and nothing happens, and, and it feels like as soon as I learn it, they change it anyway. Well, I don't so. even know where the stories are. I've literally gone to those people's <laughs> profiles. I'm like, what is it? Where is? It? I don't because know where it is. I don't. They disappear 24 hours. After oh, 24 hours. well, That's I'd hard. have to open the app once yeah. more than once a week. Okay, well that makes sense then. I didn't know that they disappeared. That it's embarrassing. I didn't know they disappeared. Uh, I've turned off the notifications for all of my social media. So uh, I'm only in there when I feel like being in there yeah, and I get to heck out as, as fast as I can. <laughs> um, thank you for your time this evening and, um, thank as well you. to your family, I'm sure they are either asleep or sacrificing time with you. So I appreciate so, it. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. I really appreciated it.
I really hope that you and I can reimagine a way to rip apart hierarchies and structures that oppress other people, not just black people, but all the people of color, and that we figure out a way to challenge those with compassion and with grace, because it is painful when structures are challenged. It hurts to change foundations. I'm thankful for the work of people like Carrie and so many others, and I'm also very thankful for their time that they come onto this show to discuss those topics, because I know they're not easy to talk about. They're exhausting to talk about. I would also like to thank Matthew Johnson and people like him that have become members and supporters of the show on Patreon. Uh, as the year has ended, I have noticed many people, I think the credit cards just expire. There's a report for that. So if you've been a supporter in the past and you realize I did get a new card recently and that's still something you want to do, just log in, verify that that's still something that is on the list. I would appreciate it very much. If you cannot support the show financially, there are a couple different ways that you can engage and or support the show. The first way is to share the show on social media. That is one of the best ways that the show reaches new ears because your voice has influence in the circles that you're in. Another easy way is just rate and review it because algorithms run our life. You are amazing, every single one of you. I will talk to you next week. Know how blessed you are. Thank you.